Misdiagnosis of a medical condition is costly for the patient, the physician, the insurance company, and can lead to as serious an outcome as death. How bad is the problem of misdiagnosis, and what can we do to minimize this problem? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Joseph Brito. Joseph trained as a pediatrician and is now Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of Isabel Healthcare. He has published more than 50 peer-reviewed papers and lectured extensively about pediatric critical care, life-threatening infections, diagnostic errors, and diagnosis decision support. Welcome, Dr. Brito. Thank you, Larry. All right. Tell me, what is misdiagnosis? Just getting it wrong? You're right. To put it bluntly, that's what it is. It's not making the right diagnosis at all or not making it in time. A large meta-analysis that looked at autopsy studies found that there was a median of about 24%. In about 24% of cases, pathologists are able to find a diagnosis that hadn't been considered anti-mortem. It's a little late. I don't want that to happen to my child. Well, you know, not just in children, but another large meta-analysis by Gordon Schiff. This was a study funded by the agency for HRQ, Agency for Healthcare Research Quality. Gordon is based at uh, Cook County up in Chicago. He and his group did a meta-analysis, and they published their report in 2005. And they found this was a meta-analysis, again, across about 55 studies. And they found that 10 to 30 percent of uh, patients suffered from diagnosis error. So 10 to 30% of medical error is diagnosis error. And that is not thinking of a diagnosis at all or making the diagnosis later than we should have. I'm wondering if any of these studies compare where you go to get your care. Are you more likely to get the correct diagnosis if you go to the University of Chicago versus the local ER? And you may not have the answer. Well, I don't have the answer, Larry, but we can usefully discuss it. You mentioned ER Like in intensive care, colleagues operate under stress and uncertainty. And by definition, in ER intensive care, you have patients who are acutely ill, and therefore there's very little room for error and things are changing quickly. And the consequences, you know, we're not talking of chronic constipation here. If you make a diagnosis and you don't think of Hirschsprungs, for example, or, you know, someone comes to you with a change in bowel pattern. So it matters much more, if you like, and it's much more consequential in ER and intensive care, but also in family practice. The reason in family practice is slightly different. The vast majority of patients are not acutely ill. Family physicians are expected, and they have this huge burden of having great depth of knowledge and breadth of knowledge. So they have to know stuff from, you know, neonates to geriatrics, but also when called upon to have depth of knowledge that the specialists have. So family practice is, again, an area where if you look at close claims, claim money that was paid out for diagnosis error, then you see a lot of it in the areas that we just spoke about, in ER and in family practice. Did you have a chance to read the book, How Doctors Think? I did, Larry. I did. There was a chapter in there about a young girl who was, I think, in the pediatric intensive care, and nobody had any clue what was going on. And the mother was the only champion for her baby, and she thought outside the box and got online and figured out that her baby had some sort of rare vitamin deficiency. You know, Larry, that is a very poignant telling story on many levels because what that mum did was she first of all went out and became an informed patient. And that's one of Groupman's points, which is increasingly now patients need to become more and more informed. They need to be better and more informed participants in their healthcare decisions. She also used decision support. So 
when I lecture, I was last week I was both at Yale and at the University of Virginia, and they're both Isabel clients. When I was lecturing there, I start my lecture by saying, how many of you use Google for diagnosis decision support? And almost invariably, about a quarter to a third of, of these residents use Google. And whenever I hear that story, and whenever I hear stories of patients using it, I actually feel quite chuffed because what these residents are doing, they're actually using Google as a diagnosis decision support system. And I tell them, great, Google's extremely useful. You know, it uses Boolean search and or, and it'll find for you web pages that have and or the terms that you've put in. But if you're using a decision support system, why not use a custom-built, validated system that's designed to give you diagnosis decisions? If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. I'm talking today with Dr. Joseph Brito, pediatrician and chief executive officer and co-founder of Isabel Healthcare. Joseph, you were saying that a lot of residents use Google as their decision support system, and it's nice, but it's insufficient. Whenever I hear of colleagues using Google as a diagnosis decision support system, I say, yeah, great. Because what they're articulating is a need for diagnosis decision support. And Google will give you pages and pay web pages and web pages that are sort of ranked by Larry Page's rank algorithm. And I say to them, why not use a custom build? Why not use a diagnosis decision support system that's designed to do just that, to give you diagnosis decision support, to give you diagnoses? so you don't have to troll through different web pages. Let me ask you this. What if Google called you up, Joseph, and said, I'd like to buy Isabel for $15 million? That's a high-quality problem question. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. Then Google may not be so bad. Well, no, no. You know, Google's incredibly useful, Larry, if you're looking for something, if you're looking for a French restaurant on the main street, if you're looking, it's very good at recovering something. So you know what you're looking for. You would want navigational assistance, for example. You know what you're looking for. Right. I, I'm trying to get at showing how Isabel and your system differs from Google in that yours is just, it's almost like a smart bomb. Yes, it uses what we call natural language processing software, NLP. Natural language being free text, the language in which you and I speak in, the patients come talk to us in, and language in which textbooks, medical textbooks and journals are written in. So Isabel is Google-like in as much as it also uses natural language processing, but it's very, very quick. It'll give you, if you put in, say, loss of consciousness, hyponatremia, and seizures, it'll say, have you considered herpes simplex encephalitis? Have you considered bacterial meningitis? Have you considered syndrome of inappropriate ADH? It will give you instantly, after trolling through hundreds and thousands of documents from text, it will give you a list of likely diagnoses to consider. Larry, it's exactly what you do. When you have a diagnostic doubt, say one in five or one in ten patients, what do you do? You say, when I have time, I'll go to my office or I'll go to my online digital resource and I'll flick through my Cecil's, my Harrison's, my Nelson's, my Oskies, my Feigen and Cherry. And that's what Isabel does. It flicks through hundreds and thousands of documents and gives you instantly a list of likely diagnoses for you as the expert, you as the learned intermediary at the point of care to consider. It says, Larry, have you considered the following likely suspects? You will then decide which of these to investigate, which of these to treat. But it's a checklist. It's what pilots use every time, despite having flown, right. you know, done 100,000 landings. Every time, they go through, every time they go through that, correct. Exactly. Well, here's my question, Joseph. I'm in the exam room, 
and I examine the patient, and I don't know what's wrong with them, so I quickly turn on my Isabel program. I come up with a list of possibilities. I pick the wrong one, and then the patient dies. I get sued. Where does it come out in terms of in discovery and in the trial that I picked the wrong diagnosis from Isabel? Is there any sort of liability that you stick into the equation? Isabel system is meant to be used by healthcare professionals. It's only meant to be used by healthcare professionals. That's part of the terms and conditions of use. Larry, let me answer it a different way. A textbook, our Bibles, Harrison, Cecil's, Nelson's, have never been taken to court as yet because I, as a physician, as a pediatrician, as an internist, as a family physician, went out, read that book, and made the wrong diagnosis. So we have in the loop, we have the learned intermediary, the physician, the nurse practitioner, so we have the learned intermediary in the loop. What Isabel's doing for you is exactly what a textbook does, which is jog your memory and give you a list of facts. It does not say, it doesn't purport to be an oracle. It doesn't say, this, Larry, is the diagnosis. On the contrary, it gives you a list in the first instance of 10 likely diagnoses. You know, just because lupus comes up right on top, it doesn't mean lupus is the most likely diagnosis. Yeah, I'm wondering if it gives you 10 choices, is that 10 based on probability? or just options? That's a great question. You know, what you and I at the point of care are interested in is my patient has come into me with abdominal pain, hematuria, and arthritis. What's the most likely diagnosis in my patient? Isabel will not tell you that. Okay, so we as physicians still have to play the odds. Exactly. You can't go into autopilot. You have to use your clinical judgment and say, here are a list of likely suspects, and now I'm going to think through. And the other thing the Isabel system does, if you click on a diagnosis, if you say, I hadn't thought of Henoch Shanlene for this patient with abdominal pain and hematuria. So I click on a diagnosis. We then mobilize knowledge to help corroborate this decision-making that you're going through from textbooks and journals. How do you investigate Henoch Shanlene? How do you treat Henoch Shanlene? What are the mistakes that have been reported in the journals? You know, Larry, I learned how to fly in my spare time, single-engine Cessna. Check the gas tank, always. <laughs> it's the number one cause of uh, death. The fuel emergency, yes. But one of the things that struck me was that aviation is so much better than us in medicine learning from error. An aircraft went down, passengers ran in the darkness towards the wrong exit in the smoke and darkness. Lessons were learned. It's now mandatory that you have floor-level lighting guiding you. We all make mistakes. Despite, you know, hardworking, conscientious, diligent healthcare workers, we make mistakes. And some of us report them in journals. I am expected, Larry, you're expected to have read an article about say, Kawasaki's disease presenting as hemophagocytic syndrome uh, three years ago. And you're supposed to carry it around in your mind, in this device, your mind, and remember three years down the line. Biomedical knowledge is ex increasing exponentially. How is it possible for us, even if we were specialists, nephrologists, rheumatologists, infectious disease, how are we expected to keep up to date with everything that is in the journals? So what the Isabel system will do is you put in, Abdominal pain, hematuria, and arthritis will remind you of IgA nephropathy. Click on IgA nephropathy. How do you investigate? How do you treat? What are the mistakes reported in the journals? What are the recent advances in the journals? So we try and help you by helping you corroborate your decision-making with knowledge. So you're combining a few things. You're combining the decision diagnosis, and then if you click through, you actually get to, like, up-to-date. You get, you know, how to work it up. Well, exactly. What Isabel is emerging, and many of the academic tertiary centers like WashU, Yale, UVA, Loma Linda, use Isabel. They use Isabel because 
Up-to-date is very useful if you know the diagnosis, if you know you're dealing with IgA nephropathy, if you know you're dealing with Kawasaki's disease. But try putting into Google or up-to-date or Wikipedia, try putting in fever, rash, conjunctival, hyperemia, desiquamation, and thrombocytosis. You're not going to get a useful result. Put them into Isabel. We'll instantly give you a list of reasonable, relevant diagnoses. You click on a diagnosis. We also offer you seamlessly, if you subscribe to UpToDate, to go to UpToDate and read about Kawasaki's, to go to Wikipedia, to go to Google, Google Images. So Isabel also acts like a, a processor, a clinical features to disease converter. Joseph Brito, on that note, I'd like to thank you for being our guest. Thank you, Larry. We've been talking about misdiagnosis and ways to avoid it. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thanks for listening.